Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading for today is Mark 10, 1 to 2, or 1 to 12, sorry. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Ken, we'll get this figured out eventually. You know, it's common to start a sermon with statistics. But when we're talking about divorce and marriage, we don't need them. (laughs) We are in a culture that is inundated with uh, the ideas, enamored with the idea of divorce. Easy marriage, easy divorce, but it is under attack by the enemy and by those who do not understand the real purpose, responsibilities, and blessings of marriage. This has been caused in a large part by society's rejection of God. When society chooses to go its own way, instead of looking to God's word and will as the basis for their lives, we begin to what? Act any way that seems right to us. And we end up getting pulled off track. We see this in lots of areas within the culture. You know, we're a culture of easy everything. Easy loans. Buy now, pay later, no commitment. Seven-day abs. I've never tried that one, so I'm not sure. The geographic, uh, ge- geographical cure to issues that are rooted in our own bad choices. If I end up moving someplace, the bad things that are happening here won't happen there. It'll solve everything. And the same lack of commitment, desires for instant gratification, and self-centered individualism that have deeply affected the culture's view of marriage as well. And sadly, the church does not fare much better. We've bought the lie that the grass is greener. We've bought the lie that the primary concern in our life is our own satisfaction, our own fulfillment, and our own happiness. You know, divorce is one of the most painful events in a person's life. 
when all the justifications of why this is okay, the false expectations of how things might be in the future, if I find a new spouse, or maybe if I stay single, or even the best intentions, this is best for the kids. They shouldn't see us fight. When all of those are set aside, when everything is said and done, divorce destroys families. It wounds people, and it grieves God. It creates, you know, and the Lord doesn't just do this to withhold something good from us. It creates consequences. It creates things that we were never intended to experience. For those of us who are parents, we know, we should know, is that it will often scar the very kids we say we're protecting by getting the divorce. Marriage is special and sacred before God, therefore it should be special and sacred before us as well. As children of God, we're called to uphold the will of God in every area of our lives. It's not just shunning sin in this area or in that area or intending or promising never to cuss or always paying our taxes or being sure to tithe and show up to church and everything else that we... It's every area of our life. And marriage is one of them as well. I mean, we need to know this. We need to understand how God wants us to live our lives as married people. God wants us to understand how to live our lives as perhaps not yet married, singles. What is it that we have to look forward to in marriage? What is it that we should look out for and protect ourselves from in marriage? We don't want to sin against God. We don't want to sin against others. God has called us to act differently, and we should strive to push against the culture of easy answers and minimal consequences. We want to avoid the natural consequences of our disobedience. Let me say right here, the guy debated on whether or not he's going to say this, but most of you already know anyway, but I'm divorced. And so when I preach this, you need to understand is that I'm coming from a place of experience. I understand the damage that comes with divorce. I understand how serious and the nature of permanent marriage that God intends for each and every one of us who he has blessed with a spouse. I know what it means to live in a culture that says it's okay, that everything's fine, and try to find my way still in God's will. And so I want you to join me in this. Better, I join you as we understand this, as we read through this and we try to understand what it means to live a life, a married life, that is permanent and sold out to God. So this message is in two parts. The first part, we're going to go through the passage, verses 1 through 12. The second part, we're going to bring some application and some, uh, some lessons that we can glean from what Jesus, is, Jesus preaches here. So let's, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark 10, 1 through 12. If you don't, that's fine. It's up on the screen as well, but bring your Bible. Don't rely on us. We're liable to make a mistake up here. The Bible in your hand is not going to make a mistake. Bring your Bible. All right, so let's take a look. Verse uh, 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. By the way, this is into the area of Perea. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom, and he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him. Key word, tested him, by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark leaves a little bit out of what Jesus actually says. Now, it's important to know this when we're reading the Gospels, that each of the Gospel writers is understanding the situation and the teaching of Jesus from a different light. Each one of these authors is seeking to make a specific point in writing the entirety of their Gospel. 
So there are times that we will see what we call parallel passages, where one passage will give a little more or a little less information because that author, through God's providence and the working of the Holy Spirit, chose to bring out a different point. Mark's big point in his whole book is really who the person of Jesus is, the authority of Jesus. And so when we see in this uh, interaction with the Pharisees, Mark is bringing out the idea of Jesus being wiser than his, um, his antagonists, his ability to navigate God's word and to speak with wisdom. So this passage is as much on that as it is on divorce itself. So let's look to Matthew. Matthew brings out a little clearer. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But Matthew brings out a little clearer message of what they actually say to Jesus. Matthew 19.3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is the crux of what the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus to ask him about. This is really a gotcha question. This was a question that was intended to place Jesus in the worst light possible, and to put him and to get him in trouble with multiple segments of the society all at once. The Pharisees thought they were so smart. They thought they were going to get him. They tried to put him in this impossible situation. To understand this passage, well, we need to understand that divorce was accepted by Jews and Gentiles. So the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, the culture of Judaism, and the Romans who lived in that area as well. Divorce was completely acceptable. It was not an issue about whether or not divorce was right or wrong. What it came down to was when was it legitimate and when was it not? Were there rules for it? Were there exceptions to it? The Old Testament only mentions divorce a couple of times, and the passage that they often used to justify their divorce laws was out of Deuteronomy 24. And this is what it says. It'll be up on the screen. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if she, after she leaves, his house becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord is giving you as an inheritance. We'll see that the passage here really has nothing to do about permitting divorce or not permitting divorce. Yet this is what they would use as their justification for it. And it broke down into two schools, which is so common in life, isn't it? There's always two schools to something. Republicans, Democrats, Keynesian economics, monetist economics, progressive, conservative. And it's all rooted in the ambiguity of the phrase, find some indecency in her. Find some indecency in her. This phrase is likely something sexual. Perhaps you've read through the Old Testament and you've read the places where it talks about illegitimate sexual unions. And it talks about this person uncovering the nakedness of that person or this thing and the nakedness of the thing. This is the same phrase. There's a little bit of ambiguity here. So two men who were the leaders of each of these schools arose. The first was Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was a liberal view of this and he said, yeah, any reason. 
Even if she burns your breakfast, you can go ahead and divorce her. The other, yeah, I know. I would have been divorced a bunch of times because I burn stuff all the time. But the other was Rabbi Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai had a more restrictive view. He looked at that phrase, something indecent, and said, no, it's related to something sexual. If she's unfaithful or if she commits adultery, then and only then is a divorce permitted. This was drawn from a collection of teachings and commentaries on the Old Testament known as the Mishnah, which eventually became something like the oral law of Judaism. In Gittim 9.10, this is a passage from the Mishnah. I'm going to share it with you now. I doubt you have it out there, so you probably don't have to turn to it. It says, The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. Again, this sexual piece. For it is written, Because he hath found in her indecency in anything. In uh, the school of Hillel say, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. You see, they use the same phrase to justify two different courses of action. Now this other guy comes along, he thinks he's smart, Rabbi Akiba, and he thinks he's going to take the whole phrase out of the problem, but he makes it even worse. He says, even if he found another fairer than she. For it is written, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. That Deuteronomy passage. It says if she find no favor and he finds some indecency, he goes back to this and says, whatever. I like you better than you, so I'm going to divorce you and marry you. It was as simple as that. This is the mindset of the Jews and the Pharisees to whom Jesus is teaching. This is very important for us to understand, to understand the passage. So he's pinning, he's trying to pigeonhole Jesus into one of two camps. Now, to make it even worse, in Mark's description of where they're going, they're in Perea. The, uh, the ruler of Perea was um, a man named Herod Antipas. If we remember Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas was the man who married his brother's wife. So he's bringing the issue of divorce up again, not only from a religious context, but a political one. This is the same man who chopped off John the Baptist's head for bringing up the same argument. So the Pharisees are really trying to get Jesus between a rock and a hard place. But as we can see in Deuteronomy 24, what is it really teaching? It's not teaching whether or not divorce is permissible, strictly speaking. It's speaking of, is it okay for a woman who's been divorced to go back to the man who divorced her? Now there's some important things to understand about this passage. It never commands divorce. Never. God never commands us to divorce. We are not obligated. It makes divorce final. It prevents a hasty divorce. It prevents the, I'm mad at you burnt my toast, so I'm going to divorce you, but really in a week I'm going to bring you back after I miss you. One and done, that's it. That's all you got. There is no coming back. And it protects the rights of women because it officially freed them. If she had a certificate of divorce, she would not prove to be an adulterer in the face of her next husband. In this patriarchal culture where men were everything, if a woman was sent out from her husband, she had nothing. Nothing. If she had no sons, nothing. She was completely helpless. And God was protecting women against this. So he points the Pharisees, Jesus, back to the passage. He says, what did Moses command you? Now he's doing two things here. First, he's pointing them back to the Bible. The intricacies and rules in the time of Jesus were developed and, like I said, what came to be known as the oral law. He's pointing him back to not the oral law, but to the Bible. 
He's saying, forget about what Hillel and Shammai say. What does the Bible say? What did Moses teach? And the second piece, this is really important for us to know. He asks them their perspective first. Well, what do you think? It's amazing when we're interacting in a culture that believes in the God of the Bible less and less and uses social issues as a reason to even investigate the truth of God's word. Sometimes we'll come before people and we'll say, you know, I'm a follower of God. And their first question is, is what do you think about this? They put out that hot button issue right away. Because for them, it's the end all be all of what we believe. And it's used as an obstacle to truly understanding God's will. It prevents them from seeing it. So our response should be, well, why do you ask? Well, what do you believe? Seek to understand their perspective first, and it helps you answer them better in a way that helps them see the truth. This is exactly what Jesus did. They said to him, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You see, they never really answer the question, do they? It's not for any and all reason. They just say he permitted divorce. But implicitly, they basically hold a Hillelite position for whatever reason. For whatever reason. In Matthew's version, they say it like this. They say it as a question. Why then did Moses command that a person give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice their misunderstanding of the passage. You see, they allowed their cultural understanding, the way they viewed the world around them, to impact the way they viewed the Bible. Some ways we all do this, and there's no escaping it. But last week we talked about allowing God to readjust our vision and being really prepared and willing to open our hearts and say, you know, this is what I think you mean. But I'm going to set it aside and read what you have to say afresh, anew, so you can speak to me and adjust my understanding of your will and your person, of who you are and what you expect of me. Some of us carry around these preconceived ideas. Maybe we pick them up as a kid. Maybe we pick them up in the church or in the world. Where you know, It limits our understanding of what God has for us because we think we already know. Same thing happened here with the Pharisees. They allowed their understanding culturally of divorce to impact the way they understood Deuteronomy 24, even though it does not command divorce. We must ruthlessly and relentlessly root this tendency out of our our own hearts and ask ourselves, what is God really saying here? What does God really expect from me? Jesus answers. He answers their question. He says, Moses said it was fine. He says it was because that your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is saying divorce was a concession. It was to protect women. It was to prevent relational chaos. And it was to maintain the clarity of bloodlines in dealings involving inheritance. Remember, every tribe got a section of the promised land. If we began mixing and matching, that would get all, let me say it this way. In other words, God was preventing the Jerry Springer approach of nation building, okay? Because that's what it most certainly would have devolved into. Okay, we see it again and again, the power of sex in the lives of, of, in our lives, its ability to drag us from the will of God, to deter us and distract us from what is really true. 
Jesus frames his response to them in terms of God's original intent. He says, this ambiguous statement, the one that you're arguing about, why don't we go back and look at the foundation of what is actually being taught? And he points back to the book of Genesis. It's so amazing. The Bible says that Jesus is our creator, that he created us. So when in Jesus is saying that it was God's original intent in creation, he's saying it was my intent. When I created male and female, when I put them together, my intent was that they would be one flesh and never be separated. I made them male and female, counterparts meant to fit together and complement one another, to work together to achieve the ends that I have for them. They leave their families. They start a new one because they were made for each other, not for their families. They were made for each other. Because their marriage was sealed by God, therefore no one should undo what I have done. Jesus makes the question that they raise basically irrelevant. He says it's neither this nor this nor that, it's this. Let's go back to the foundation of it. He looks at the core issues and the original intent, and in doing so, he makes the commandment stricter. We see that very commonly in the New Testament when Jesus speaks about Old Testament laws. They make them more difficult. Think about adultery. Jesus says, you have heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery. That makes the commandment impossible. That makes the commandment unable to be done. Only God in his grace, only God in his grace can move us to the obedience and give us the acceptance before God the Father. Verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. I should say so. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. The disciples needed clarification because this was totally different than anything that had been taught by other teachers. This went against the cultural understanding. In Matthew, the disciples say, be better not to be married then i got to get locked into this thing. And the answer is, you're right. The answer is, you're right. Sometimes it's better. However, refusing to marry somebody who you're already engaged in a quasi-marriage relationship in while claiming to be committed undermines the very commitment you claim to have. I encounter this all the time. Two people are living together as husband and wife. They're not legally married. They say they do not wish to be legally married. Oftentimes it's because they've been divorced in the past. It caused a lot of trauma and drama, and they don't want that again. So they'll say, well, I'm committed to this person. I'll stay committed to this person. I intend to be with them for the rest of my life, but I don't want to get married again. But I'm committed. The question then is, is then why not be married? Because there's an escape. By not being married and not allowing it to be legal, there is a way out. And that very idea undermines the commitment that God is demanding of us to have toward our spouses and towards those who might be our spouse. We are in it forever. God creates one flesh from two. And it should not be torn apart. Matthew 19.9 says, it says a little more here, because if we just get from Mark, we're going to miss out all of God's teaching. Matthew 19, 9 
says that if anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we see something of an exception here. We see something there, and we're going to learn more about that. Matthew gives a more comprehensive response that there is at least one exception to Jesus' prohibition on divorce. The word that's used here is porneia. Porneia is a word that has something of a general flavor to it. It means sexual immorality when it's used in conjunction with other words, right? Because to be strictly speaking, there's a word in Greek that is exactly adultery. That's moikia, okay? Moikia is the specific act of being unfaithful towards one's spouse. Porneia has a, a broader teaching to it. This is important for us to know. While it normally speaks of adultery, it can mean other things. You know what I'm talking about? That pornography that's not hurting anybody that nobody's going to know about. Oh, if as long as my spouse doesn't know, it'll be fine. These are grounds for divorce. Jesus elevates this behavior to such an extent that it makes it the one or two only reasons to sever what God has put together. We do not take this seriously enough. We do not. We minimize things in order to assuage temptation in our heart. Instead of elevating God's intent for our life and looking to him in faith and trust. It's a whole other message. It's a whole other series. But this is something to be thinking about. Per Jesus' words, adultery is more than just the act of sex with another while married. That's the teaching. That's what Jesus has to say to us today. Let's see how we can apply this now to our lives. What are some of the applications and implications? First, God intends marriage to be forever. This should be our starting point in every conversation about marriage and divorce. It's the foundational idea. When people come to me for marriage counseling, first, marriage forever. We're not, I, had, I heard a story about a guy who would go, this kind of dates it, but a guy would go to weddings, and as a gift, he would give them a Webster's Dictionary, look just like every other dictionary, the people probably thought, why the heck is this diction? Why are they giving me a dictionary? If you went to divorce, that was cut out of the D page. Like it was not even part of the vocabulary. It was something you never, ever spoke of. This is God's intent. God tells us that in marriage, two become one flesh. And violence, listen to that word, violence is done when that union is rent apart. Now, to just say divorce is wrong is one thing, but to understand why there's marriage helps us see why it's so important. So there are four purposes, really, to marriage. This is something that of every one of my wedding messages, I'm going to give it to you in shotgun fashion. One, to create a new family. The first family, who was it? Adam and Eve? Wrong. The Trinity. The Trinity was the first family, is the first family, always was the first family. It was a group of three held together in love, Three become one flesh, sort of. See what I'm saying? Do you link it? Do you see how the Trinity is the prototype? It's the plan. It's the pattern of our human marriage. So to create a new family. Two, to populate the earth. God gave the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Three, to help each other obey God. This is my favorite and the one I hate the most. When I don't want to obey God and she's needling me, I love you. She's fulfilling her role in my life. You see, Adam couldn't tend the garden on his own. And none of the animals could do it. Probably a opposable thumb issue, but anyway. Fourth, 
for spiritual, emotional, and sexual intimacy, for relationship, companionship. Therefore, divorce should not end lightly. God has amazing purposes for marriage. It should not end lightly. It should not enter, be entered into lightly either. On Thursday, I watched uh, the Moody Founders Week, and Erwin Lutzer came up. He goes, marriage is a funny thing. It's two people striving and fighting to work out issues they never would have had if they never got married. <laughs> there is a lot of truth to that. Those of us who have been married and have really worked hard, let me tell you about the working hard. I remember people would tell me marriage is such hard work. I'd say, what's so hard about it? You get to have sex and they make you dinner, you know? <laughs> what's so hard about it? Joke's on me now because I'm the one who cooks most of the time. But anyway, what's so hard about it? Adam preached on it a couple of weeks ago. If any man seek to come after me, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. It's hard denying yourself. That's what's hard about marriage. Denying yourself. Wanting what you want. And setting it aside for the benefit of the other, out of love and sacrifice, the way Christ loves and sacrificed for us. A lot of singles in my life, and I love them. I have a heart for them. I have a heart for them. Because I know me, and I couldn't be alone. <laughs> it would be really, really hard for me. And so I feel it. I feel their pain. Yet I often wonder what they hope to achieve. If you're single out there, wait. Wait. The Lord will give you light. If you don't have light on going, that's light on staying. That means don't do anything. Don't run ahead of him. Don't look to your options and say, well, these are my three. I guess this is who I got to pick. Hold out and trust the Lord. Hold out and trust the Lord. I read a story about Henrietta Mears. Many of you might know who she was. She was a, a Christian educator at a church in California. She said she was going to marry this banker, but she asked the Lord early on in their relationship, should I be with him? And it just, it didn't sit right. He was, not the, he was not a believer who was following Christ. He said, you can do anything. You can go to church on Sunday. I'll even go with you. He gave her the whole line. We'll raise the kids as Christians. I'll go to church with you. You can, it's not going to prevent you at all. But she said it would be like two people eating a wonderful meal in two separate rooms. It didn't seem right. So she chose not to, and she ended up being single her whole life. And she said, look, God gave me thousands of kids. Thousands. And she said, I didn't understand it then, but I understood it later that I was never lonely. I was never lonely. She threw herself in trusting the Lord, and God provided for her every need. So we shouldn't enter marriage lightly. The gravity must be upheld. The gravity of marriage must be upheld in every situation. Two, God has made provision for divorce in very limited circumstances. God provides two cir uh, circumstances, exceptions to the permanency of marriage, and he allows divorce. We've talked about the first one, sexual immorality. More specifically, adultery. Okay? Again, not commanded. The ability of us to forgive, even when wounded deeply, is available to all of us by God's grace. No marriage is beyond repair, and no marriage cannot be reconciled them to each other, each other to God. Never. The other one is desertion of a believing spouse by an unbelieving person. Let's look at that. This is, um, what is, I forgot to put the passage in. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, 
A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, this is Paul speaking, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So Paul's affirming the permanency of marriage just as Jesus did. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. So Paul does make a distinction here between what he's saying and what God's saying. It causes a theological question for us. If he says this is me speaking, is it not God speaking? That would make everything God's word except 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. I think it's all God's word. I think Paul makes this distinction because Paul himself was single. And he was putting this sense of humility in here as well. But in the end, this is all God's word. He says, to the rest I say this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, to understand these words, you need to know that this was a time of intense persecution of Christians. There were Christians coming out of the Jewish faith. They were believing in the new Messiah. And everything was stripped from them. So what I think Paul's talking about is a family who were already unbelievers. One gets saved. Now you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. If that unbelieving spouse is a way of rejecting Christianity in a highly charged and persecutive environment, leaves, the believer's not stuck. The believer can remarry in the Lord. Okay? But if that person intends to stay after the salvation of one of the members, we're commanded to stay. We're commanded to stay, no matter how hard it is. No matter how different the worldview. Because it's not about our agreement, it's about making each other holy. It's about... If you're a wife whose husband's an unbeliever and you got saved after you got married and your husband's, you're making him holy somehow in the eyes of God. He honors that one flesh piece. And likewise the other way. If you're a husband and your, your wife is an unbeliever, God is saying that you are doing something to protect her, to make her holy unto him, even though she does not believe. And how do you know that your witness one to another won't save them? You don't. So you don't leave. Some Christians uh, Christians have problems with these exceptions, these divorce exceptions in the scripture. They say, well, if these are exceptions, but God's original intent was this, we better hold to the original intent and reject the restrictions. I would caution us against that. I would caution us against that because we end up being very close to what the Pharisees would do in protecting the commandment. Do you remember that? We talked about that. The Pharisees would say, well, if God says this is good, then it would be even better to not do this. And they would give a long laundry list of things. Here God, in his mercy and his grace, gives us exceptions for divorce. Yet always, we need to know that marriage is intended to be forever. Forever. These are not escape clauses. These are not, I'm just holding out for her to do this one thing. This is not the reason or means for us to leave. This is simply an exception, a tragic exception to something that God intended to be forever. Divorce should be the absolute last resort. Absolute last resort. Three, God views divorce as a tragedy. 
God views divorce as a tragedy. It's in vogue in some circles these days to have something like divorce parties. Finally free. I'm going to hit the town. They celebrate the severing of ties of matrimony between two people. They exalt this so-called freedom and usually embrace the notion of unrestricted sexuality. That's really, it's really what it is. I'm free. Now I can have sex with whomever I want and not feel guilty about it. But God hates divorce. Hates divorce. And so should we. In the New American Standard uh, Bible, Malachi 3.2 translates like this. For I hate divorce, <laughs> says the Lord, the God of Israel and him who covers his garment with wrong. This Hebrew can be translated in several ways. I say this because in one of the translations, it says, he who does violence to his wife. Any way you look at it, God hates divorce because it does violence to the other person. It hurts them. And he goes on to say, so take, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. In the other one, it says, so be faithful. Actually, I think it says, so don't be unfaithful. Divorce is a violent action that rips apart a living being. The marriage of one man and one woman creates a new entity, a family, and two become one flesh. Think about this in terms of reproductive biology. Think about a woman's egg. Carries with it all the genetic material of that woman. Think of the male sperm. All the genetic material of that woman. These are two separate beings, entities, we'll say. They come together and they make a new thing, a living human being. That's like our marriage. Now imagine taking all of that apart after it's been put together. What violence would be done to that? What violence? This is the same kind of violence that God sees when he sees us divorcing. Divorcing. This is what God is seeking to protect us from. This is what God doesn't want us to do. Marriage is a picture of God's intimacy and his covenantal love for his people, and divorce runs contrary to that picture. God knows the sting of divorce and an unfaithful spouse. Again and again, his people, his bride, rejected him and went elsewhere, worshipped other gods. And he knows after everything he did for them, created them for himself, the promises he made, yet they still left. He knows what it feels like to have been cheated on. Fourth and finally, is divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Because divorce is so violent and tragic, those who have been divorced virtually always carry shame and traumas with them. I mean, I was divorced years ago, and there are times that when even with Elaine, we'll be interacting, and it's like, oh, you're not that person. <laughs> or I'll guard myself against a perceived or potential hurt that was perpetrated against me then. And it would influence my relationship today. All of us carry wounds who have been divorced. All of us. And they affect the people around us as well. This is compounded when they only find judgment, insinuations, assumptions from others. Even worse, their own, their own family and church. We're a community that is intended to be taking the broken. That God intends us to take the broken and to love them to encourage them, to speak truth to them, to point them to the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, the complete, utter, unconditional forgiveness that is in the Savior. 
those who've been divorced, even for unbiblical reasons, are not outside of the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. Those of us who've been divorced need not feel like second-class citizens. Need not feel like a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. And those who've not been divorced should not consider it as such either. Because here's the bottom line. There was a time when we were all divorced from God. We're all divorcees. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, alienated, estranged, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So remember where you came from. So remember, God intends marriage to be forever. God has made a provision for divorce, though, in very limited circumstances. God views divorce as a tragedy, and divorce is not an unforgettable sin, unforgivable sin. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching. This is a very hard teaching. We know, Lord, that, um, that you've called us to something more, something better. And it gets even more complicated when there's two people involved, Lord. Sometimes we want one thing, our spouse wants another, and there's conflict. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to love our significant other, Lord, our spouse, well. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a high view of marriage. I pray, Lord, for the singles, that you would give them patience, that you would give them grace to wait for the right person, that you would give them grace to look to you as their sole source of everything they seek. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this church and make this a church family that welcomes people with open arms, regardless of what's happened in the past, and loves them the way you love them unconditionally and forever. We thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you. And so do we.